Hello again, and welcome to today's broadcast of Practically Political, where pragmatists talk politics. I'm Paul Gilbert, sitting in for Dave Spencer. We have another very special guest today. Scott Mulhauser is the founding partner of Aperture Strategies, a strategic advisory firm working with corporations, coalitions, nonprofits, and trade associations to navigate public affairs, communications, and management challenges, both domestically and across the globe. He has also served as Chief of Staff at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and prior to his time in Beijing, worked as Deputy Chief of Staff to Vice President Joe Biden. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. Great to be with you. So to start off, how would you describe the current mood in Washington? We have a lame duck Congress and a potential shutdown if an agreement isn't reached on a spending bill. The Senate racing to get more judges approved, the economy cooling off, the General Motors plant closures, and the looming presence of the Mueller investigation. How does all this bode for the rest of 2018 as well as the beginning of 2019? I think if you were looking for a word, you'd probably land somewhere between divided and fractured. I think what we're seeing is a host of different lessons coming out of this midterm election earlier in November, and those who want to draw lessons can draw them. And the Senate got redder, the House got bluer, there are a litany of candidates who are priming the pump to run against President Trump in 2020, and the economy chugs along. And there are open questions on judges, the shutdown, what will happen with these tariffs, and a litany of other things. And there doesn't seem like a plan exists to escape, solve, or fix any of them right now. It's a fractured Washington, and it doesn't seem, as we head into a divided Congress in January, like it's about to get any better anytime soon. So the honeymoon of the first 100 days sounds more like an annulment starting on January 3rd. (laughs) It is. Come January 3rd, I think you're going to see Democrats in the House focused on a couple different pieces, and I think part of it will be to show not only to take on the president, but also to show they can govern. And you'll see everything from ethics and governance issues on through voting and expanding at the polls, on through health care, which is, I think, one of the big galvanizing pieces left in the Democratic Party. But I think you'll see Democrats try to show that they can govern. And if there are moments, whether it's infrastructure or lowering drug prices or pieces where they think maybe they can work with the president, they'll consider it. But I also think a bunch of Democratic committee chairmen and other leaders are spoiling for a fight, particularly those running in 2020 or preparing to run. Scott, it's easy to criticize this president with no shortage of controversies and crises among the continuing chaos that seems to be business as usual at the White House. Trump's approval rating is dropped to 38 percent, which means six out of 10 Americans disapprove of the job he's doing. My question is, What is going to be left of the Republican Party when the Trump era is over and his cult of personality fades away? What if he's forced out of power or doesn't run or loses in 2020? Where does that leave the GOP? If he's forced out of power, Mike Pence is standing at the ready. He thinks, and I think his allies and acolytes do as well, that he is one of the few that can bring the Trump wing of the party and the more mainstream, let's call them John Boehner Chamber of Commerce wing of the party. I think Pence stands at the ready to run either if the president does not finish his term, if he chooses not to run again, or when he ultimately is done. He doesn't come with the same bluster that the president has, but he certainly comes with a more loyal following on the Hill and among traditional Republicans. I think Pence stands at the ready, and I think it will be fascinating to see whether that Chamber of Commerce, business-driven Republican, your traditional country club Republican, 
we'll continue to back whatever the next Trumpian nominee, a next Trumpian candidate that comes from the Republican Party. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch because I think what you'll have, as you're seeing a little bit on the Democratic side as well, is a split between those who are sort of in the more mainstream wing and want to do and accomplish and see what they can fix and those who want to campaign and those who want to bluster and those who want to use the bully pulpit to shout and throw punches and see where they land. And I think you're seeing some of that play out in the Democratic primary fight for 2020, and I think you'll see it come the end of the Trump presidency whenever that happens as well. Scott, how do you see the various scenarios for the outcome of the Mueller investigation, which is the very large elephant in the room at the White House? It seems almost inevitable at this point that there will be a constitutional crisis that will end up in the Supreme Court. You raise an interesting question, and it certainly is consuming Washington right now. And where folks seem to be is this divided Congress means that the Democratic side of the aisle will continue to look into this, and and particularly in the House side where they have the chairs and the gavels and they can investigate the administration writ large and the president specific. When that Mueller report comes out, it'll be a question as to what a bunch of Republicans think. In all likelihood, he will make recommendations to Congress on how to move forward. And the question will be, how does Congress respond? Is there enough of a galvanizing sense that this is holistic and thought through and real and complete that it can rise above, if not certainly every member, enough of both caucuses, that there can be enough of a consensus that they can move forward? Conversely, if not, you're going to divide quickly into partisan rancor and eventually potentially end up in the court. I think it really will depend on what a bunch of mainstream Republicans will do. And that caucus has shrunk in the House as Democrats want a bunch of seats. But it exists to some degree in the Senate. There are a bunch of senators from bluish or purple states, whether that's Cory Gardner in Colorado, whether that's Tom Tillis in North Carolina, whether that's moderates like Susan Collins and and Lisa Murkowski, and others. I think where they land will dictate a lot of where Congress lands if they get presented a report. And at the point where the numbers begin to get there, that's when things get thorny and things get particularly interesting. But I would look for those purple state and moderate Republicans, and they will be the bellwether for where the caucus goes if it comes down to Congress deciding the fate and future of the president, and then ultimately, potentially, the court does as well, obviously. Mitch McConnell won't bring a bill to the floor to protect Mueller's investigation. It is fascinating to watch. It may well come to the floor if the votes get there, but no one is better at mastering his caucus as majority leader than Mitch McConnell is. All things are political to McConnell, and he will watch this play out, and not until he feels like he has no choice. And sometimes even if he feels even more, he will do all he can to preserve the party and the party in power. He does not want to make his members take tough votes he doesn't think they have to take. And I suspect from his perspective, he may not want to force a vote to protect Mueller until he feels like he has to, and he may not feel like he has to yet. Watching Schumer parry back and forth with him, these are two master strategists, and I think It's hard in the Senate when you don't have the majority and you don't have the votes. But where McConnell takes this thing will in part be depending on what his caucus wants and what the situation demands. I think this really gets hot the minute the report gets close to its release and as members start to having to make decisions about exactly where they should be on some of the issues that could indeed foster a constitutional crisis. Speaking of issues, one that got no play in the 2016 election and little focus in the 2018 midterms is climate change. And there was the major scientific report 
released the day after Thanksgiving by 13 federal agencies that predicts unless significant steps are taken to rein in global warming, changing climate will have devastating effects on the economy, knocking as much as 10% off the size of the American economy by century's end, as well as significant damage to our health and the environment. And when asked about the climate change report, President Trump responded, quote, one of the problems that a lot of people like myself, we have very high levels of intelligence, but we're not necessarily such believers. Now, if I didn't know better, I'd say that was a quote from Mad Magazine's Alfred E. Newman, whose motto was, what, me worry? So the question is, how much longer will climate change deniers and fossil fuel supporters be able to get away with burying their heads in the sand on this issue? And what impact will climate change have on the 2020 election? So the report was indeed devastating. It was thorough, it was evidence-based, and it was thoughtful, it was well done. And it was released on the Friday of Thanksgiving, which tells you exactly what this administration thinks of it, which is they were compelled to release it, but released it on a day where they knew it would make the minimum amount of news possible. And I think that tells you where these folks are. And I think there will be a constituency, particularly in states that produce coal and in other states, to sort of always have this perspective. And I think what you'll see is you've seen an array of impressive new members come to the House, and I think you'll see more of them come to the Senate. And I think while that will be always a piece, particularly of the Republican Party, you are seeing more and more folks who just can't deny the truth anymore. And there may be deniers that still exist, and there sure are in both the administration and on the Hill. But I think as newer generations come in and as dynamics and demographics change in the Senate and the House, it feels like those become a smaller and smaller tranche. And some are trying to split the difference and not deny it, but not really willing to do much actively to engage on the topic. But it is a real problem. It is a real problem that needs addressing. And that's what you saw by executive action at the end of the Obama administration and what you'd see a bunch of Democratic committee chairs in the House and if the Democrats eventually went back to the Senate. The Senate willing to take action, whether it's the Paris Accords or you name it, you're seeing cities and states take the lead. So everything from the big summit in Los Angeles onward, you're seeing cities and states and other countries really begin to pick up the mantle where the U.S. hasn't with this current administration. And hopefully that pressure works. And hopefully the issues that are flowing from this global warming and from this climate change will prompt more action. But it's going to take some changes in leadership in key committees and in this administration for that to be a real issue. Talking about the economy, Let's talk about this administration's trade war with China. You know, we've instituted tariffs on $150 billion of imported goods with threats of raising that to $250 billion in January. And of course, China retaliated with tariffs on billions of American goods. Now, you were the chief of staff at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and have represented the U.S. across China. In your opinion, is a trade war with China winnable, or for that matter, sensible? And how will its fallout affect American consumers, workers, farmers, and corporations. And do you see some kind of trade truce between the U.S. and China at the G20 summit? I think there are a lot of us that are willing to be tougher on China and want to continue to level the playing field, but don't think tariffs are the right approach. I think the tariffs are already starting to have a blowback effect on those American workers and farmers and jobs and wages, and I think that will continue unless we come up with a different approach. And I think that approach can be everything from taking on some of these state-owned enterprises in China and taking on intellectual property theft and forced technology transfer and joint ventures and, and human rights issues and a host of other things that are 
there are real problems in the U.S.-China relationship, but all tariffs are doing are costing jobs and making our products cost more money, and that is only going to get worse. I don't think it's a problem the president wants going into his 2020 re-election, so I'd look to this week's summit between President Trump and President Xi of China to see what signals you get. A number of executives who've been in to see the president in recent weeks have seen signals that the president wants an off-ramp from this trade war, that he knows that there is blowback on the farmers and other workers who helped elect him, and he's starting to understand and see the impacts. And so if he can claim victory, he may well want to take it. Now, the question is, what will that victory look like? And what he may end up doing is dialing down the opportunity to go up to 25% on tariffs. But I think he is looking for an off-ramp, and the question was, what will the Chinese give him to find it? The rhetoric continues to be blustery, but I think if the Chinese offer him something real enough, he'll take it. What that is, we won't know till he sidles up to the negotiating table with President Xi later this week. You know, one of our biggest conflicts with China involves intellectual property theft, particularly of American technology. And Germany, France, United Kingdom, Japan, and other U.S. allies are also concerned by the economic threat from subsidized Chinese companies to their key industries. Uh, including automobiles, robotics, communications equipment, and semiconductors. However the trade war unfolds over the next two years, what will it take to get China to clamp down on intellectual property theft, which costs the U.S. economy hundreds of billions of dollars each year? You hit that nail on the head. I actually have an op-ed published this morning on that very topic. It is real. It is endemic in the U.S.-China relationship, and it is something that needs addressing. And if you're looking for ways to take on China, to be tough on China in ways that are unfair to American innovators, it starts with intellectual property. And the Chinese are rhetorically and structurally taking steps. They are building the IP courts, and they are doing the things that need to be done. But ultimately, this happens too often, this appropriation of American IP, and it is harming American innovation in a real way. And I think because so many of these entities are state-owned, because so much of this happens in compliant Chinese courts, a signal or a mandate from the top, from the Chinese leadership, from the Communist Party leadership and from the Chinese government to say enough is enough should be what we insist on in these trade negotiations. Rather than tariffs, pieces like this will actually help American workers and American jobs and American companies. It is time for that to end. And there is an easy way to do it, which is it has to be an instruction from the top. And that is exactly the kind of thing that we can hopefully see coming out of negotiations like these. Not rhetorical wins, but real substantive ones, starting with intellectual property. You know, when you travel or deal with international clients, I'm curious what people from other countries are saying about America and Americans these days. Do they have the ability to separate how they feel about our government versus how they feel about the American people? I always like to look at the visa lines to make sure, but as much as you and I love our country, others love coming here, working here, visiting here, and studying here as well. It may be a tough moment for a lot of folks, given everything from what's happening in the immigration front on through the effects of these tariffs, a litany of other pieces of our politics onward. But America is still the beacon for so many. I never felt more proud than walking into the embassy for work every day and seeing that visa line and seeing how many people wanted to come visit and wanted to come experience and study and work and play here and just get a sense of what America is and why we are the beacon that so many look to. 
What about the international business community and diplomatic community? What's your sense of when you deal with your international clients and you travel around the world? What's the feeling about our government? Figuring out this moment in our government and our politics is tough because what businesses want is certainty. They want to know that when they seek answers and they get them, that those answers will hold. They want to know when they adapt their bottom lines and their policies and their staffing and their approaches to a government policy or to a new law that it's going to hold, that when they hear something from an American leader in the White House or elsewhere, that they can count on that as the word and that we're going to stick by it. And I think watching the lurches, both from one administration to another, and then, you know, even now, day by day, as we shift in policy and in tone and in tenor from accommodation to combative to everything in between, it's frustrating for them, and they're just trying to figure out how to read the signals and what to do about it. And it is American companies as much as international companies. Yeah, it's tough to make predictions about policy when you have to follow the daily tweets to get a sense of what's happening in the Oval Office. That's exactly right. And I think you wonder what's going to happen in, for example, this meeting between Trump and Xi this week. When they sit down, well, some of it is because he's going to walk in the room and decide, right? I mean, in a typical administration, you would have a process that gets worked through with senior cabinet members, perhaps in consultation with Capitol Hill or with private industry or with consumer groups or you name it. But in this instance, I think the president fashions himself the best negotiator, so he will walk in that room, decide what a good deal is. I mean, he has been brought deals by his Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross and others to reduce Chinese overcapacity in steel and, and other sectors. And he either thought the deal wasn't good enough or for other reasons rejected it. He thinks he's the master of the art of the deal, and I think as a result, he does a lot of these meetings, whether it's with the North Koreans or whether it's with the Hill or whether it's with the Chinese, one-on-one -on -one and decides what he thinks a good out is. And that worked for the EU, which struck a decently reasonable off-ramp, but it hasn't worked for the Chinese yet, who just don't quite know what to do with him. Changing topics, you were the deputy chief of staff for Vice President Joe Biden. Do you think he would have beaten Donald Trump in 2016? And will he run in 2020? He had a lot going on in 2016 from the passing of his son onward. And so I think it's fair to allow him that time to grieve and to want to spend time with his family. But I do think his message is a compelling one. And his appeal is pretty remarkable. And he can go to campaign for Connor Lamb in blue collar Pennsylvania and go to New Mexico and go everywhere in between. I mean, he is one of those rare Democrats that can campaign nationally and add value wherever he goes. And I think that's why he's asked more than just about anyone to go campaign um, for House members, mayors, governors, senators, and more. And I think that message resonated. And you saw some of that blue-collar appeal that Trump had. But a lot of those guys would have been Biden voters. So I'm not one to relitigate 16, but I do think his message is and was a compelling one at a moment where I think that would have had value. As for the future, I think he's thinking about it. He has done a book tour and a bunch of barnstorming for candidates that has taken him across the country. He has both liked the feedback and been pretty well received. He's managed to sort of set up a institute and a host of other pieces that let him stay involved internationally and in everything from international pieces he cares about on through his Biden moonshot cancer initiative on through politics onward. And so he is engaged and involved in public policy. I think he will take a long, hard look at 20 and see whether the moment calls for him and whether he is feeling up to the challenge. Do you have any overall predictions on Democratic presidential candidates or GOP Trump challengers? I think 
for GOP Trump challengers, you're going to see folks jump in, if anyone does, who don't have a lot to lose. So if you are Jeff Flake and you're a retiring senator, or you're a governor without races to run in the future beyond a national one, those are the more likely folks to consider taking on Trump. One of the other rumored candidates, Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, has a long career ahead of him, and I'm not sure he wants to take on a fight he'll likely lose. And I think it's not the worst thing for President Trump's reelection from his perspective to have a couple opponents, say a Jeff Flake, be able to vanquish them and say, look how strong and powerful I am, because an astounding amount of the Republican Party has fully come behind President Trump. And this notion that there is this silent tranche of Republican voters who are not Trump voters but are Republicans seems to get smaller by day if you pay attention to the polls on the election. So a lot of Democrats are hopeful it's there, but Trump has coalesced a remarkable percentage of the Republican Party. And so I think what you'll see in terms of folks running against him is folks who feel like they don't have a lot to lose. On the Democratic side, everyone is going to run. If you've ever thought about running as a Democrat and you don't run this cycle, you shouldn't run. You will see mayors and governors. You will see businessmen and women. You will see senators and congressmen. And you will see entertainers onward. It is too appealing to not to jump in. There is a contrast to be drawn. There are policies you want to espouse. And if you can't draw a contrast here as a Democrat, you can't draw a contrast, period. There is going to be a challenge, however, because the party will engage in this race leftward. And that is a good thing for those who want to expand the scope of our policy discussions. But you also want to appeal to swing voters who can understand realistic scopes of your policies. So I think what you'll see is Democrats racing leftward, and you'll see, I think, well over a dozen, potentially two dozen or more, all thinking about the race. And they are all within their right to do so. And I think you'll see it thin. I think you folks want a candidate with some dynamism. I think folks want a candidate with some real appeal and some charisma. But the question is, do you want a pugilist who can fight back against the president? Do you want somebody like a Beto O'Rourke or a Cory Booker who sort of has a particularly inclusive vision and a pretty positive vision? Sorting through both the personalities and the approaches of these candidates is going to be fascinating. I think you'll see Beto O'Rourke take a long, hard look at this race after losing a close center race in Texas. And I think if you're him, there's not a lot to lose similarly because the next statewide race in Texas where you have a shot may not be for a while, so he might think it's time to run. And I think you're going to see a lot of people think that way. I think you could see that from someone like Mayor Michael Bloomberg in New York, who figures he's towards the end of his career and he's always wanted this, and he's got the money to do it, and he's got a compelling story to make, so why not do it? And I think you will see that math happen in everything from former cabinet members like Castro and on through mayors like Landrieu and Garcetti in Los Angeles, on through governors like Hickenlooper and the impressive Steve Bullock in Montana and Jay Inslee in Washington, on through a host of senators we all know about, from Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar and Kirsten Gillibrand, even House members and Seth Moulton, Eric Swalwell, and more. It is going to be a free-for-all, and it's going to be amazing to watch. Scott, we always ask our guests one final question. Even in such a dysfunctional and divisive time in national politics, what gives you hope for the future? Well, I'll tell you this. I teach a class at Georgetown with my Republican counterpart, someone I sparred with for years who's become a good friend. And watching these students engage, want to participate in public policy, wanting them to get in, the great questions they ask us, they ask our guests, and they ask of each other, it's so phenomenal. It gives me hope that no matter your partisanship and no matter your sense of our politics today, the, the future's bright, 
And I'm thrilled at how many new folks ran and won this cycle. And whether you're thrilled with this moment in our politics or disgusted by it, feel confident that change is around the corner. And I encourage my students to jump in, and a lot of them have with both feet. And I'm hopeful that a lot of your listeners do as well. It is amazing to see all these veterans and teachers and small business owners and everyone who weren't involved with politics start winning races this cycle. And I hope we see more of same. And it's just what we need, which is a dose of new perspectives and a dose of new candidates and a dose of new elected officials. Because if you care about climate change or you care about tax rates, you care about anything, you getting in to share your voice either as a candidate or support a candidate is how races are won and lost and how society changes. You've been listening to our conversation with Scott Mulhauser, the founding partner of Aperture Strategies, a strategic advisory firm in Washington, D.C. Scott also served as chief of staff at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and worked as deputy chief of staff to Vice President Joe Biden. Scott, thanks so much for appearing on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that's it for today. Dave Spencer will be back for the next round of Practically Political, where we go beyond the deluge of everyday news to dive deeper into American politics. I'm Paul Gilbert. Have a great week.